Hello, this is Toby Haydock's Who's Round. It's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. Don't worry, that doesn't mean this is the last Who's Round. Uh, there are plenty more to come, over 50. But uh, this is the last interview I conducted as my quest's deadline arrived at the end of December 2013. I had one story left to cover. Uh, so uh, the original plan, you see, had been that I think the interviews would be released pretty much as I did them. And so through 2013, you would build up to see if I succeeded in my task or not. But that went by the wayside fairly early when we realised that we were never going to have the release rate uh, keep up with the amount of interviews that I was doing. So in a sense, we lost that that feeling of drama and the quest simply because of the practicalities of Big Finish having plenty of other things to do, which actually helped with their business rather than be a sideline. So, OK, th that's fine. Who said it all had to be released in the same year? But that means we slightly lost the element of the quest and of the chase. So what I've decided to do is, because this interview is quite an important one, this very last one, I, I have a sense of drama, you know. Uh, there's a danger of it being out of date if I leave it to the very end of the process. And because I recorded it on the 22nd of December 2013, it seems right to have it out now. So I have to know. Um, and to reveal for this one and only Christmas special whether I completed my task or not. So let me talk you through December so you have a sort of idea of, of, of how this whole thing went. Um, on the 2nd of December 2013, I interviewed Andy Goddard. You've heard that interview. He was the director of The Next Doctor. Now, I'd already got an anecdote from that, but uh, my other half happened to be out with some of her work colleagues, one of whom turned out to be Andy's wife, and that he lived five minutes' walk from us. I'm not going to turn down the opportunity to uh, interview a Doctor Who director, even if I've already covered their story. And then I had to scamper back, because my last Troughton, I'd actually interviewed somebody from, um, who'd done a number of stories, but they didn't really have an anecdote from this last Troughton. I hoped they'd knock that off for me, and they didn't. So... I went for somebody else who has had a major contribution to other Doctor Who stories and actually not such a big one to this last Troughton. So that was quite a nice way of knocking off getting somebody who's spoken before about the show to talk about a story they don't usually talk about. So far, so good. And then uh, a lovely day, two days later, where I had to uh, get rid of the talons of Wang Chiang brilliant story but you see Christopher Benjamin and Trevor Baxter they do the wonderful Jago Lightfoot series for Big Finish and I've actually done a CD interview with Nick Briggs get that it's great so it would have been a cheat to use the, that contact to get those two gentlemen even though I would love to do either of them so I went a different route and got uh, somebody very illustrious for that uh, who also said I look like Rory Kinnear which I'll take um, and then I had to head straight back to London uh, to do the only uh, Who's Round interview where both participants are wearing a collar and tie. Uh, that was to nobble off the android invasion and is uh, one of my favourites. Uh, so then by the 9th of December, I had uh, arranged to, to meet Mark Gatiss, who had chased me uh, because he wanted to do Who's Round. And you've heard that interview. And then I had to 
head back to do an interview with a friend of mine who'd been one of the first people to offer their services. And I suppose I sort of thought that was cheating. I don't know why I've made this difficult for myself. But I wanted to get people that, that wouldn't just take a phone call, I guess. But anyway, I relented and covered uh, a number of stories, one of which uh, still needed crossing off on my list. Uh, and then I still had this chronological triumvirate of the awakening, uh, Frontios and Resurrection of the Daleks. And so I'd picked up a lead that had gone cold about four months before um, to get somebody from The Awakening who hadn't been on the DVD, which I did. It turns out he'd worked on lots of other Doctor Who stories in an uncredited capacity as well, um, even though he never knew the titles of any of them. He was like, I did one called Doctor Who and the Heat Wave. Like, was that Dean with his claws of Axos? Anyway, he covered, that was, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, and then Resurrection of the Daleks, of course, should have been easy because I did that DVD extra where I interviewed five of the cast and we tracked down most of the cast for that. Um, but in fact, I uh, I didn't do that. I decided to go for somebody we didn't uh, cover uh, in that documentary that Ed Stradling did. So uh, there I was finding myself Skyping to India, as you do, a uh, week and a half before Christmas. Uh, and then for the 18th of December, I'd arranged to interview Leslie Dunlop about Frontios. But she's in Emmerdale, and suddenly her storyline kicked off, and suddenly she couldn't do it. So I found myself on the 18th of December going, oh, how can I possibly now cover Frontios with a week to go for Christmas? No way I'm going to be able to do anybody um, between Christmas and New Year. I mean, it's just not the time of year. You can uh, you know, tap somebody up and say, by the way, can you spare some time away from your family to talk to me about Frontios? So I emailed somebody I'd never met before and um, ended up having one of the most relaxed and comfortable and interesting Who's Rounds, which was convened at a day's notice. These, this, I mean, this is the amazing thing, and, and this is where I would really like to thank all of the people who've partaken, because largely somebody they'd never met dropped them an email or rang them with a stuttery phone call and said, please, can you give your time for free uh, to a stranger? And 180-odd people did. I find that incredibly um, touching. Uh, that same day, as Leslie um, cancelled on me, I think she cancelled on me the day before, I'd also arranged to meet somebody who was going to help me knock off uh, the Horns of Nymon, which was another sort of chronological uh, gap, because I also didn't have the Leisure Hive. And I could have got rid of the Leisure Hive really early on, because when I was filming an adventure in space and time, one of the extras revealed that he was a Fomazi, and we chatted for ages. I said, well, actually, should we talk and get you on record? And just as we were about to start recording, we had to go and film, and then the day was over and he was gone. That was a lesson, because I'm not a journalist, you see. Grab your stories while you can. And then the Leisure Hive <laughs> repeatedly let me down. And so I went to meet this, I arranged to meet this person for the Horns of Nymon, and as it turned out, she said, oh, well, I'm having lunch with so-and-so, who'd worked on the Leisure Hive. So I did both of those people and got that done uh, with a little bit of a happy accident. So that was uh, the last one, apart from the Frontios last minute. Also that week, I had the chance to knock off something not originally on my list, slip back. But hey, I had the chance, so I did it. Interviewed somebody from that after, I think, my last London gig of the year in Covent Garden. And uh, as we came out of the gig, the Donmar warehouse was over the road. Peter Capaldi was standing outside the theatre posing for photographs for fans. I think he'd been to see uh, Mark Gatiss in his show. But isn't it weird the way the world of Doctor Who works? 
and then I just had to cover one story. Time of the Angels and Flesh and Stone. That is all I had left to cover. I'd had leads. Uh, it looked like I was going to get a weeping angel, but that just didn't happen for some reason. A couple of the troopers as well. Um, a few behind the scenes. It just never quite seemed to be happening. I even at one point um, contacted a few showbiz friends, showbiz friends, um, people who I know who know showbiz people, to see if anybody knew Mike Skinner from the streets, because I thought, well, that'd be quite a good way of covering it. Uh, and and pretty much, and then I thought, well, who can I, let's see who I can get. I, I, at this point, I will talk to anybody to see if they can give me an anecdote about this particular last Doctor Who story. We're nearly there, ladies and gentlemen. We just need one more anecdote from one more episode of Doctor Who, so I'm going to ask this person who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. I'm Sarah Milliken, and I have no idea why you're talking to me about Doctor Who. No, no Sarah, you, do you remember? Is that episode um, of Doctor Who that you, you, were, you, you were nearly in? I was nearly in. Oh, um, so I auditioned for it. Well, well, well. No, I think I think we were just going to say because you're you're you know in showbiz, you were probably around when they were making Doc Doctor Who. No, I'm I'm all, I'm much younger than you think I am. So I, I haven't... No, no, this was a new episode of Doctor Who with the Weeping Angels. You know the statues. I'm sure they're on Graham Norton with you or something. The, I remember the... Now, order, now you, I remember the Weeping Angels. I saw that episode, but I definitely wasn't in that episode. So what, do, what, do, do you have a, a message for the Doctor Who fans? Um, maybe widen what they watch on the telly. Maybe they could watch other things as well. Can't just be limited just to one program, really. And it's the sort of program that people grow out of, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's Mr. Milliken who hasn't grown out of it yet. Sarah Milliken, thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, everybody, I think I've cracked it, so I'm going to ask my guests to introduce themselves. I'm Jeremy Paxman, and I'm being accosted by a very irritating man. Ah, uh, yeah, but but Mr. Paxman, I'm I'm I mean, Kirsty Walk's been in Doctor Who, Andrew Marr's been in Doctor Who. I'm sure you've got a very interesting anecdote of being about the Doctor Who episode, uh, Time of the Angels. Not only have I never been in Doctor Who, I have no aspiration to be in Doctor Who. But did you threaten to have an aspiration to be in Doctor Who? What are you talking about, Jeremy Paxman? Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, hello everyone. I have one Doctor Who story left to cover, and I have somebody with me, and I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. What? what? Uh, I'm Phil Jupiter's off of Nevermind the Buzzcocks. What is it again? What are we doing? Um, well, you, I, I've just got this one Doctor Who story left okay, to cover, yeah, and yeah, we've yeah. got 24 hours left till the end of the year. Oh, and, okay. And I think you, you visited the set of Time of the Angels, did you? Where would you have heard that? Uh, well, um, but you, I mean, you you love Doctor Who, don't you, Phil? I um, I'm not entirely sure where you got this idea that I have anything to do with Doctor Who. I work on a pop quiz on BBC Two. Y yeah, but but um, I I think you were with, in an edit suite when they were editing that that episode of do do Doctor Doctor Who. I, I, look, right here's look. I, I don't want to be rude. You know, you seem like a very, very nice young man, and uh, Noel Fielding's eyes lit up when you came into the room, but quite seriously, I, I think, you know, you should just go. I think we should just, you know, put this behind us. 
as an experience. But Toby, just put it down to experience, mate. Really, I, I, I can't help you. Okay, did you have a message for the Doctor Who fans? No. Phil Jupiter, thank you very much. No, thank you. Oh, that didn't work, did it? Um, <laughs> fun, though, I hope you thought so. Come on, it's the only interview Jeremy Paxman's ever given about Doctor Who. Um, thank you to those three lovely people. Um, but, listen, I had to do it. Time was running out. Um, I had to get somebody who'd worked on this particular Matt Smith's first two episodes recorded as Doctor Who. Just somebody who was there to mark that moment. Anybody would do at this stage with time running out. And I finally, I think, managed to get hold of somebody. So I hope that you enjoy this final humble offering. Hello, everybody. This is the last um, of these podcasts because I've got an anecdote from every single Doctor Who story bar one, so almost a year to the day after I started this thing, I have one more person to ask who they are and why I'm talking to them about Doctor Who. Hello, I'm Stephen Moffat, and I'm the, uh, the head writer and executive producer of Doctor Who. Well, goodness me, and you're probably very busy, so thank you very much for doing this silly thing. Are you writing, <laughs> are you writing Doctor Who at the moment? Excellent. Well, I, I hope um, Andrew Pixley is listening, because then I might be mentioned in a Doctor Who archive. Which <laughs> <laughs> so listen up, Pixley. Um, well, look, um, I, I, I've, I've been charged... To... You've made this difficult, actually, because I'm, I'm supposed to be getting an anecdote from every single Doctor Who story. I need to do Time of the Angels, Flesh and Stone. But therefore, but I got me thinking, do you count, because you've written some brilliant stuff that hasn't been on telly, like Night of the Doctor, and then, or, or some has been on telly, like the, the, the Children in Need, or the Comic Relief, or all of those things, are they canon? Do I need to get anecdotes yeah. from them as well? Actually, or, or as Mark Griffiths would say, in a very contemporary sort of way, canonical. Uh, but yes, of course, they all count, everything counts. It's even we've got Paul McGann's Regeneration in that in a mini-sode, as we unfortunately call them. So, yes, they all count, I'm afraid you haven't finished anything like it yet. Uh, oh, no! Oh, no! Oh, well, this episode might not have to get written then. No, I'll be quick. Um, well, OK, Time of Angels, Flesh and Stone was Matt Smith's... I mean, they were done in the same block, weren't they, as the 11th hour, so it was... No, they were done... Yes, they were. No, they weren't. They were not. They were done... They were the very first stories he shot. They were a block on their own. Um, then Adam Smith came back uh, to do uh, uh, the 11th hour as a, who was the director, uh, as, a, as a separate block, uh, uh, for the third block. So no, they were a block all by themselves, and it was the very, very first time that Matt played the Doctor. So, and, and, so that must have been uh, in at the deep end for you as well, then? Oh, God, yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I think it was uh, the, the most terrifying thing, really. Um, I don't think I don't think that two-parter particularly suffered uh, because we were all so focused on it. Uh, me and Piers and Beth, we were all so focused on that two-parter. I think where the show might have wobbled slightly was that to the stories in the second block, uh, The Beast Below and Victory of the Daleks, we weren't paying enough attention to the prep for because we were so focused on the... We hadn't really got into the rhythm, which I'm so into now, 
it's, yeah, you've got one filming, but you've got another one prepping, and one beyond that, and there's ones that aren't written yet. You've all got to be working on the future shows. So it was in the, in the deep end, but I think, I think, the, uh, I think the, the damage was done elsewhere. And what were the aspects of the job, therefore, having, having been... I know you've run shows in, in before, but in terms of coming into Doctor Who, having been a writer, what were the aspects of your new job title that, that knocked you for six that were the biggest surprises? None of them at all, really, because I've done exactly that job before. What we call these days showrunner, and, uh, and that's a fine and good title, but it doesn't exactly exist. What we call showrunner is just the, uh, what I call uh, writer. Um, you know, I did exactly the same job as Doctor Who as I, as I did all those years ago in Prescott. I mean, I'm at the production meetings, I'm at the, I'm at the dubs and in the edit. I just thought that's what a writer did. But now we need to uh, confer an extra title on it, I suppose, so we, we do that. But no, I, I, I'd always done all the extra duties that I do on Doctor Who and all the shows I've done. So, not, so no part of that knocked me for six. What knocked me for six is Doctor Who is which has a shadow of a doubt, the hardest thing to make in television, it just is, uh, at least in television fiction anyway. So that, that knocks you for six. So much more work than that Doctor Who than anything else. So much more. And, you've, and you are on such a long uh, haul. You know, it's 13 episodes, but it's not any old 13 episodes. They're all in different places and different time zones. There's hardly any regular cast. You've got one standing check compared to anything else. It's just a, a, a rolling nightmare that, that, you know, the cacophony never gets any quieter. Used to it now, bit of a shock back then. And, but in terms of the way that television is made now, you've got Matt Smith coming in as Doctor. In the old days, that, you know, that Doctor would have rehearsed in, in the Epton Hilton or whatever, and you as the, the exec would be able to watch that performance and sort of take him to one side and say, more of this and less of that. It's a, it's a bit more on the, the fly at the moment. So how, how did you formulate the Doctor with him as you were making those two episodes that I'm, I'm keen uh, well, to cover. Well, there were, there were uh, a couple of rehearsal days. But I, 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 you know, I don't think it's true that, that we rehearsed on the fly. Remember, uh, in fact, in the old days, yes, you'd have all those days of rehearsal, and then you'd go and record it in a studio night. Mm-hmm. And now rehearsal, important as it is, it's nothing compared to the actual recording or the actual moment where you committed irrevocably to film or to tape. Uh, so, you remember, we, we, it might not seem to be much rehearsal, but we shoot, I don't know, five minutes a day, you know? So you're getting, you're, you're getting the hang of each individual scene quite carefully, and you're getting a chance to respond to how this is coming off on, on screen, because you're seeing it in the rushes, as opposed to just in a rehearsal room, and the distinction is huge. So I would prefer this version of working to the, uh, you know, rehearsing the Acton Hilton uh, version, uh, which I have done, because I've done a lot of sitcoms. And well, and talk, uh, it's, uh, 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 one of the things that leaps out of me of, of, with um, that two-parter is I, I love the idea of um, warrior monks because you sort of, all, you know, religious warriors in a way. So you break away from the sort of typical mm. military thing, and you got Ian Glenn in, and that was a that was a coup. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah, you know, he was a he's absolutely mad man too. Uh, well, I mean, it was. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't because of the name of this show, you can get people who, anyone who's available who doesn't actively hate it will show up and do a Doctor Who. You know, we've only just invited John Hurt. You, know, you really can get uh, uh, people into the show because it's got such a, it's got such a good reputation and it's so beloved and if they've got kids in the house, they certainly want to impress them. Uh, so yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, it was very exciting to get it. He was a, he was a terrific, uh, a quasi villain, quasi antagonist for, for Matt to go up against in his first outing. 
Well, okay, as you said um, that they all count, can we cover quickly then before I let you go? These, um, the, uh, and I think it actually it, it, cup, it takes in a good question, I think, to ask you of all writers of Doctor Who, is that I think you more than anybody, and, uh, and, and um, some of the, the, the specials that you've done do this particularly, I think it's a raison d'etre, is, is you take the fact that Doctor Who travels in time more than I think any other writer of Doctor Who has done. And I remember reading an, uh, an interview in Doctor Who magazine years ago where you said that you were good at structure. And I think that the, the way that you structure your episodes um, is... is I, I, do you have to... I mean, is that in your head or are you a post-it note stuck around the office sort of man? And what is it that brings you back time and again to this idea of, of not using the TARDIS just to get to the Doctor there and take him away again? but actually to use that as the, as the driving force of the drama and how you peel away the layers of plot and shocks and character. Um, no, I don't, I don't use post-it notes much, to be absolutely honest. I always kind of think if you've got a plot right, you'll remember it. If you've had a good idea, you're not going to forget it. It's not like that happens that often. I've, I've never forgotten a good idea. Fortunately, I've forgotten all the rubbish ones. <laughs> memory is an excellent editor and an excellent notepad. So no, I don't bother that. Other writers do and swear by it. I just don't. December 2013, we're, uh, what, three days away from Christmas, um, and so we're going to see uh, the end of Matt Smith. Now, I'm a man who stays spoiler-free, so I'm not digging here, but um, if you could tell me something uh, about that episode, just so that I've covered that as well, and then I really have done every episode of Doctor Who, um, uh, I'll, I'll die a happy man. Okay, well, don't do that. Um, uh, well, no, no, anyway. Christmassy action 
in, in a town called Christmas, and it's uh, there's lots of fun and lots of monsters, and I think it, I think it's, it's actually quite funny. Because one of the things I uh, I think is important about saying goodbye to a doctor is, is remembering what they were like, not making them uh, different from what they normally are. So I didn't want it to be in a somber mood because Matt's doctor has been in a riot. So. He, uh, for the first 20 minutes, it's uh, you know it's as close to meeting a, a, a laughter track as Doctor Who's ever needed. Oh, brilliant! Well, um, well, thank you for that. I, that it's, it's, it's but when you when you say that all these things sort of are, are all the things that you seeded in with this end game in mind, did you know that you when you were putting these things in, or did as you were writing, you go, oh, that might suddenly work with that. Because I find that with comedy sometimes, you'll write a joke and you'll suddenly realise it, it works for a joke earlier in your show. And people think uh, it looks uh, very planned of, and it's uh, not. Uh, loads of things happen. Uh, loads of things happen like that in writing all the time. You realise that you can finesse one plot strand with another plot strand and it will look as though it was tremendously planned. Um, as you'll see, some of these couldn't have been that. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> fairly obvious what we've been, we've been going for. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so, I mean... I can't now remember exactly the original plan, but I remember sitting down years ago and, uh, and having to explain what this was, what the various odd bits uh, of unfinished business the Doctor in terms of explaining what they all are and what it's all leading up to, just to assure everybody that it wasn't it wasn't completely random. Uh, you know, the, the, the truth is, when you sit down and, and gather them all together, you think, oh God, just it's not it's not that you can't explain it, it's can I explain it neatly. I don't want. I, I don't want a flip chart for this scene, but fortunately, we don't really have to. But there was, there was a fair amount of unfinished business, which I quite like, because it forces you to. It forces you to tell a story. Well, you unfinished business. You regenerated Paul McGann, <laughs> which I don't think anybody could have. I, mean, I think when people said, "Oh, will we ever see that?" I think people would have said, "Oh, that's just a fan's wet dream," and yet it fits perfectly and got non-fans talking to me about it. Extraordinary. Well, it's exciting, isn't it? I mean, that's what you can do when you've got the 50th. Because I was looking at the 50th as a whole bunch of programs. And I wanted to say, well, you know, what would be, what would be all the work dreams you want, everything that you could, every treat you could have and then some. Uh, and, you know, what, what if you have a whole extra doctor? I think that would, I think that's pretty cool. I'd say it's John Hurt. It was also John Hurt. That's, you know, because one of the things that bugs me is because the show was off for 15 years, we must have missed out on at least one doctor. So I thought, well, let's shove another one in. Someone who could credibly have played the part at that end. It could well have been John Hurt. That's who Michael Gray denied you. It was John Hurt. Yeah, the John Hurt era. The loads of great stories. You probably had every time the this in the work. You know, it's brilliant. Then you think, well, there's two now missing regenerations. Why don't we just do them? Why don't they get Paul along and, uh, and actually have him have his final moments? And that was a riot. And then you get to the other regeneration in the, in the show. I mean, it's just... It's all the things that you wanted to happen. I mean, and the other thing of, um, you know, I knew that we could, there was a way to bring Tom into the, uh, into the, uh, the big 50th itself, but, but what could we do with the other doctors? The ones where I couldn't have endless dialogue about why they all look different. That, that would not have worked, and there'd been too many of them. But then people started talking about this fan movie that we're going to make, um, just for a convention, and uh, so I got them a, a budget, more or less. And a camera crew and uh, and Peter Jackson uh, and and they got that many. So you see those three doctors. It was just trying to, it was trying to tick every box, play every note that everybody felt that somewhere along the line they got their version of Doctor Who, the one they love. 
And if none of that works for you, you've got Mark Gatiss's film about the making of Doctor Who as it was back in the 60s. You can just kind of throw open the door to the spooky shop and say, take what you want. Well, I have to say, I was I was ready to be quite... You know, Doctor Who fans, we set ourselves up for for a fall or to be disappointed just because that's the way that Doctor Who sometimes discard its series. And uh, and I was in the eye of the storm as well because I was at the Excel, obviously, and, and uh, I thought maybe I'm too close and the magic will dissipate. I think it was, uh, for 50th, it was an extraordinary thing. And um, the and, and, and I, I went into the five-ish doctors, not ex- ex- I thought I was expecting a skit. I was expect I was going. This is going to yeah. finish. This is going to finish in a minute because we've got the three doctors yeah. together. They've done the funny ha ha ha, and then they went on the road with John Barryman and his children. <laughs> um, yeah. It was yeah. an amazing thing. And if it's one of the very few, one of the very few fan uh, 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 oriented uh, uh, movies that has Peter Jackson as the second unit director, <laughs> I <don't> know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it was well. I'm glad. I, I'm glad. I'm glad because I knew there was an awful lot. Uh, as there always seems to be, of cynicism about what we were planning for the 50s, even though people didn't really know what it was. It's what uh, Gareth Roberts calls uh, and disappointment. <laughs> it's the determination to be disappointed, disappointed in advance of what we were doing, even though nobody knew what it was. And I was wandering around saying there wasn't going to be any classic doctors in the 50s, which was a lie. Obviously, they were all there. We even got Capaldi. Um, you know, it was just... Just wanting that to feel like a series of moments from, really from Night of the Doctor through uh, Adventures of Space Time, through the 50th, through the Five-ish Doctors. You're just getting loads of treats that you wouldn't normally get. And then it's not just more, it's just it's special moments that you just wouldn't see any place else. Yeah, it's, it's funny that people thought that you didn't care, you, you weren't that bothered because you sometimes, oh, Cardiff, don't care about the old series. You're the man that wrote Time Crash, which is as much of a love letter to old Doctor Who has been, has been done under new Doctor Who. I don't know where it comes from. It doesn't matter how often I, I demonstrate my fan credentials, which are are immense. You know, I've got I've got the number one fan credential. I walked away from a three picture deal with Stephen Spielberg uh, to make Doctor Who in Cardiff. I'm definitely the most hung up on this show there has <laughs> ever been. I trashed my career. <laughs> in Hollywood just for this. No one has ever run away from LA, LA to Cardiff before. And yet they dunk my devotion. How dare they? Ah, uh, yeah, but you haven't spent the whole year interviewing somebody from every single Doctor Who story. I have. <laughs> That's true, I have. <laughs> but, um, but, but you have been kind of... Look, I've... I've um, well, I've dragged you away from your typewriter for too... Oh, it's probably not a typewriter for too long. I'm absolutely thrilled and astonished that you said yes, but uh, and it's a great way to end the podcast with uh, the person currently in the producer's chair. So I guess the, the last question, you talk about your fan credentials. Um, when you go, and I'm not saying that you, you should any time soon, but when you leave, do you think Doctor Who would be safe in the hands of uh, a non-Doctor Who? Do you think it's actually time that the fan stepped away and somebody who wasn't a Doctor Who fan breathed the next life into the show, especially with a Doctor Who fan again playing the Doctor? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I'm just going to be very honest. I know people want me to say yes to that. Um, and, but, you know, I can't often talk to directors who will say, I don't really know Doctor Who, but that's great because I will bring something fresh to it. And they don't. What they do is bring every single thing that every other director had already thought of to it. Uh, one of the advantages of, being, of having not necessarily a Doctor Who fan, but being someone who's thoroughly acquainted with it, 
um, is that you know what's been done and you know what it is, and it's quite a hard tone to catch. That sort of half halfway between Hammer Horror and the Generation Game is a very, very difficult thing to get, but it's hard wired into you. There are way, way, way enough people who, even if they wouldn't call themselves Doctor Who fans, uh, um, love Doctor Who, because you have to love it, that uh, we never have to stray outside it. A complete stranger to Doctor Who make an appalling mess of it, I absolutely promise you. There has to be some... There's, a, there's, a, there's another feature in this which sounds slightly uh, self-serving and slightly sentimental, but this show is so hard to make. It is so hard compared to... You work so much harder than you work on any other show ever um, that you have to love it. You have to have come through the door loving it before they start, you know, dumping ton after ton of bricks in your head because that's what it feels like. It feels like electing to spend your life in a state of, uh, of nervous breakdown. That's what it's like. It is, it is like that. All that stuff that Russell wrote about in um, The Writer's Tale, it's all true and worse. Take the jokes out, <laughs> you've got the absolute reality of what it's like. Uh, so I think it will always be somebody who loves Doctor Who very dearly um, and knows it very, very well. Whether or not they call themselves uh, a full-time fan, I don't know, but uh, it will always be someone who, uh, who knows it well. Or, is pro- or, or I suppose it can be someone who falls in love with it very quickly. Because Matt Smith wasn't uh, wasn't a fan, didn't know it, but there was something about him that got the tone of it instantly. And by the time he turned up on set, he was a fan. He'd made himself a fan. He'd got the hang of it. He, he really understood his Doctor Who by the time he was playing. I don't really remember every who every companion is, but he he had made that connection with the show that I think is absolutely essential uh, to making it. It's not like any other series. I know you've heard that a million times, but uh, the reason you've heard it a million times is because it's true. Well, fabulous. Well, look, I have two more questions to ask you, and then I'll let you uh, be on your way. Thank you so okay. much for your time. Um, oh, with what number episode are you writing of next year, by the way, as as we record this? I am writing episode four at the moment. Excellent. Right, I'm getting... I can, I, I can only up to that one because my name is actually on it. Frequently, I, I have, I'm actually writing an episode I'm theoretically not writing, but ah. <laughs> I'm actually writing that one. That, so you're not a lot of writing. That, <laughs> that's, a, that's something for Pixie to find out in, in, in the next 50 years. Yes, it is. Oh, all the horrors that will be uncovered. But anyway... <laughs> The two final questions are, one, uh, I don't get paid for this, nor do you, and the listeners aren't paying to download it, so what is your charity, please, Stephen, and I will direct them there. I uh, cancer research, yes. Cancer research. And the final question is, it's an active one I started asking in January this year, and I regretted it ever since, but I'm a Doctor Who fan, so everything has to be the same. So um, it's the 50th year of Doctor Who. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there? a wasting and it's uh, a landmark that will see nothing uh, in, uh, in 150 years time uh, it's just a stop on the way barely started oh but the terrible thing is though as a Doctor Who fan that means that it's bad enough when Doctor Who's taken off the air but the idea that Doctor Who might carry on after one is dead is even worse because what classics, classics might we miss there's something even more magical about Doctor Who which I think this is a little bit magical if all the episodes are never recovered, the last ones, if they're not, and the chances are they won't all be, there will come a day, and it won't be that far away, when no living human being could have seen them all. Uh. 
some backstory that hasn't been written over the past 25 minutes because I've been tearing you away from the show we love so I must stop but um, but ending this podcast that I never thought I'd complete and certainly not with the uh, the, the people that I've had doing it um, Stephen Moffat thank you very much indeed bless you thank you for that so much I really appreciate it well have a lovely have a lovely Christmas yeah have a great Christmas take care Wait, hang on. Yes, that was Stephen Moffat. Yes, I started with Susan Moore and Stephen Mansfield. I finished with Stephen Moffat. What a lovely piece of symmetry. And then when I was putting together my list, I just noticed out of the corner of my eye, that Vincent and the Doctor was red, which meant I'd covered it. And I thought, but who did I speak to from Vincent and the Doctor? And then I realised, when I spoke to Arthur Darville, I crossed off all of his in big blocks, because he was in lots of consecutive stories. And I accidentally crossed off Fitz, Vincent and the Doctor. And I hadn't covered it. And so I phoned Stephen back and got him to fill me in on that one. So here he is. I forgot about Vincent and the Doctor, so Stephen Moffat has kindly agreed to um, uh, fill me in on what will be the very last story I talk <laughs> about on Who's Round. So, Stephen Moffat, Richard Curtis writing for Doctor Who, and surely the only Doctor Who story that says if you've been affected by any of the issues herein, which I suspect meant lots of people who've been abducted in the blue phone box um, calling the BBC... <laughs> Um, so it's a, very, it's a very odd, strange and beautiful episode. So how did it come about and what do you think of it now? Uh, well, what I think of it now is I, I honestly think it is one of the best, if not the best, Doctor Who stories ever made. I think it is quite extraordinary. Um, I always get grumpy when it just doesn't win outright as the best ever episode. But I suppose the positive way of spinning that is if Doctor Who is a show that has enough other shows to make that not the best one ever, <laughs> then that's then it's one hell of a show. Uh, so I, th- I think it's an astonishing piece. It came up because uh, when I was taking over Doctor Who, um, I just spoke to Richard about doing an episode because I'm a huge fan of his work. I think he's an, an amazing writer. Trouble is, he's so amazing, he's become incredibly successful and people don't actually notice that he is genuinely amazing. And I thought he could bring some of the uh, the emotional brilliance uh, uh, that uh, Russell was always so good at, and I'm less good at, to Doctor Who in Russell's absence, in a way. I thought he could give us that. And uh, and the next step uh, on on that path was he he texted me, I think, while I was in Kew Gardens with my family, saying, 
I want to do a documentary story about depression and suicide. And I just said, oh, dear Lord, really? And he checked the funny scene the show. Uh, and then the next text said something uh, like, but it will also be funny, which <laughs> was sounded sort of kind of whacked out. But then he, he laid out to me what he wanted to do, right to the music track that plays when uh, Vincent walks in to see all, the, all his paintings. I forget the name of the track now, but it was, uh, he'd even chosen that. And he was, uh, uh, so he, he was just full of this idea. He just desperately wanted to do it. Um, and uh, he, he was a delight to work with, I have to say. He, you, know, you know, he was slightly worried that he, he, he wasn't a writer of that genre and, uh, and uh, thought he would need a lot of help with that. Uh, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a lovely process with Richard. He was much more adaptable and, uh, and easygoing with notes and incredibly long emails from me than most other writers are. Um, and I, I think the, the, the end result was just beautiful. Because we see that, because we see that with um, uh, with the celebrity writers, if you like, and I'd include Simon Nye in that. You know, you've got writers who are and and people like I know Stephen Fry fell by the wayside, Paul Abbott fell by yeah. the wayside. So, mm. what is it about Doctor Who that is a tough nut for crack? Therefore, even for writers of of that caliber, which means they haven't all made it. And 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 what did what did Richard Curtis have to do to get his Richard Curtis stuff into the Doctor Who? format to make it work yeah um well what, what makes it tough i don't i don't quite know except i i, I can't say hand on my heart as russell has said hand on his heart it is the hardest thing to write compared to anything else doctor who's harder i think possibly because there are no coasting scenes in doctor who there are no bits where you're just having a bit of a chat or just being witty or wry. everything has to be in your face and interesting and exciting and you are doing every genre at once. You're doing you're doing all that comedy. Doctor Who is a very funny show. It's funnier than most comedies. Kicks kicks the crap out of any actual sci-fi comedy. Doctor Who <laughs> yeah. every single time. It's actually funnier than any science fiction comedy, and it's not even a comedy. You have to have a great grasp of genre and uh, 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 you know of the rules of genre. Uh, movie making in a way you have to know how to write to a very very strict budget but make it look as though you're not writing to a very strict budget it's easy just to put it in a room you've got to work out how you're going to put it on a fantastic spaceship that blows up uh without uh blowing the budget as well so in, it's technically incredibly demanding um it's just there's just not that many folk who do it who do it really well it's it's a really tough and nobody does it easily it kills me every time uh I'm just embarking on a new one at the moment and wondering why, why and after all these years, 10 years, I still haven't the faintest idea how to write it. So it's, a, it's, a, just a, it's a very tough one. Very, very tough. Um, I, what, what does Richard have that... Uh, well, Richard, first of all, has no ego at all, as far as I can see. He doesn't... He, 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 when he talks about his writing, he talks about it in a very dismissive way. He just buckles down and does it. Now, I think he's a, a man of extraordinary vision, and uh, I think when people look back on this era, he'll be one of the defining writers of this era, even though he's probably not seen that, that way by snobs at the moment. So he's just a man who, can, who will be able to do whatever he turns his hand to, whether that's, <laughs> whether that's writing a fantastic sitcom or saving the starving. He just, he's just got that. He, he just doesn't stop. He just works at it. And he does listen, even though he's, you know, got every reason to ignore me, let's be honest. 
uh, he's got 20 visas in on me. Uh, he doesn't. He's uh, he's very assiduous and uh, and just works very hard at it. But he will set like stone if he does not uh, agree with what you're saying. If there's, if there's something he, he pushes back, uh, you'll give him you'll give him 20 notes. And you'll say yes, 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 and then he'll say on the 21st note, absolutely not. That's completely wrong. Which is what you want from a writer. You want writers to occasionally say no, no, you're wrong in what you say. Um, so that, I suppose, then you've got a huge grasp of uh, the popular audience, huge grasp of uh, writing popular stuff that people love. He's very, very BBC One. He's very mainstream. And I say those as huge compliments because I've always thought being mainstream is actually difficult compared to being niche and clever on BBC 28 or something. Actually being mainstream is really tough. As he, so he had that grasp. But, you know, mainly he did it well because he's a genius. Yeah, so we covered Vincent and the Doctor, but I'd actually got Stephen to swear to secrecy, and he was perfectly happy to play along, because I could have talked to him about Vincent and the Doctor in that phone call on the 22nd of December. Um, I just... I couldn't lie to you. Everybody's been so supportive, and it's been such a good project, I can't end it on a deceit. But I didn't realise my oversight until January. So that phone call that you've just heard took place on the later date. So what that means, dear listener, is that I failed in my task because I didn't get the anecdote from Vincent and the Doctor. Even though I spoke to the person who gave it to me in 2013, I didn't get that particular anecdote until 2014. So despite the fact that I didn't interview companions until I'd got most of their stories covered, so I didn't cheat that way. Uh, if I'd worked with somebody on the DVD, instead of using that contact, I tried to get somebody else, speak to somebody that hadn't been interviewed before. Uh, despite all of that, despite last-minute frontiers woes that I solved due to an administrative error where I accidentally crossed out a story I hadn't covered, I didn't realise that error until it was too late. I'm afraid to report that I failed in my task to get an anecdote from every single Doctor Who story in the year 2013. Despite the fact that I did spin-offs I didn't need to do, that I did that final Matt Smith series which hadn't been part of my original plan. Despite all my lofty ambitions, I failed. But I suppose, as a great man once said, failure is one of the basic freedoms. I'd like to succeed in something one day, but alas, <laughs> it wasn't to be this. And it was Vincent and the Doctor as well. So as a penance, I shall go off now and chop off my ear. So how can I make it up to you? Um, well, all right. How about, as a bonus, an anecdote from a story yet to be broadcast? For you, as a penance, <laughs> as I cup my bleeding ear hole, here is an anecdote from today's due-to-be-broadcast Christmas special, Last Christmas. We have somebody who is returning to the Who's Round podcast, so I'm going to, tell you, I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who again. I'm Dan Starkey, and I play Ian the Elf in the Christmas special. 
well, we don't have to do this because I was only supposed to get an anecdote from every story up to 2013, but heck, why not? It's the hundredth. So give me an anecdote, please, Dan, about your role in Last Christmas. Um, it was enormous fun to, uh, to, to film. Uh, Nick Frost is a great guy to hang around with. Uh, but uh, what I'm going to speak about is I uh, was wearing an elf hat with an amazingly heavy bell on the end of it. And at various points, uh, the bell would whirl around and hit me in the back of the head. So it's like being hit in the back of the head with a cricket ball made of metal. So if the eye wince at any point during the Christmas special, you'll know that's why. Well, bless you, Dan Starkey. Thank you very much. And what is your Christmas message to the Doctor Who fan? <laughs> Uh, season's greetings, human scum. Brilliant. Thanks, Dan. Reverted to type there. <laughs> well, that's that. Um, well, I hope you forgive me. I, I like to think my voice doesn't crop up too much on these podcasts, apart from the beginning and the end. Uh, and I'll have you know, when I edit it, most of the stuff I take out is my rubbish, um, which means you've been denied. I was going through my stuff the other day. I found this. You've been denied uh, gems of contributions uh, like this. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I know what a consummate professional. There's <laughs> plenty like that on the cutting room floor. Anyway, look, when I started this project, um, I don't have any recourse to officialdom or anything like that. Uh, I'm just a bloke with a computer. So I depended very much on the help of others. When I wisely started with Ben Jolly and Lee Allen, who are friends of mine, who I know from experience, have left no stone unturned in trying to get in touch with everybody who's ever been in Doctor Who. And they were generous um, with their time, suggestions and contacts. And then on the internet, Steve Ovell, Joe Halliday and Steve Hall, all three gentlemen I've yet to meet to this day, um, also came to me uh, with loads and loads of contacts and suggestions and addresses and, uh, I mean, the kindness of strangers has propelled this project through to its completion. Um, and then let's go in no particular order. Um, Simon Gurrier, Anthony Keach, uh, Ed Stradling, uh, Sue Cowley, uh, Simon Harries, Joe Lidster, J.R. Southall, Martin Jameson, Louise Jameson, Cliff Chapman got me a load early on, John Dorney. I oh, see, this is the acting profession sticking together. Matt Fitton from Big Finish, uh, Mike McGrillis, Oliver Crocker, who got me a load of early important breakthroughs, which got the thing off to a great start. But kicking it off, very first thing was my friend Kevin Davis, who took me to the pub with Stephen Mansfield and Sue Moore. Thanks, Kevin. Um, Jim Bradshaw from BAFTA, who secured me introductions with people I would never have dreamed of getting and got me access to, I think, another tier thanks to his using his place in BAFTA to uh, open a few doors that otherwise, I think, would remain closed. I've still never met Jim. Thank you, Jim, so much. I don't know if the world needs a female equivalent of Toby Haydock, but if there is one, it's bad news for her, I'm afraid, but I say it with much gratitude. It's Lisa Bauman, who, uh, what she doesn't know about actors doesn't need to be known, and uh, virtually emptied her address book and put it in my direction to get me a lot of contacts and a lot of interesting people uh, not from your usual Doctor Who spheres and put in a lot of time to do it. Thank you, Lisa. Margot Hayhoe, who once I'd interviewed her, practically finished the project for me by noting which stories I hadn't covered and essentially putting me in touch with somebody from almost everyone. So much help there. Uh, David Warner, Lenny Newnham and the BBC Tech Ops guys, Mark Ayres, Paul Venezes, 
um, Robert Ross, these are all mates helping me out, Johnny Camden, D Dan Revelato, Sarah Pinborough, still never met her, uh, Joe Lidster, John Richards, Pav Roberts, uh, James Rockcliffe of the Doc2 podcast, uh, Stephen LaRiviere, Scott Edwards, Damien May, uh, Adam Lawton, Neil Cole, Libby Oakley, Zoe Aitkins, uh, Kenny Smith, uh, John Gorry, Emrys Matthews, Harvey Unwin, Bill Dudman, uh, John Cooper, uh, Paul and Dexter from Phantom Films. Brilliant. What a great organisation they are. I urge you to go to their events in Chiswick. They're great fun. Stephen Elston, Andrew O'Neill, Robert Dick, Hannah Dolan, uh, Mark Morris, Liz Khan at Cockshot, Erica Edgerton, another great convention organiser, uh, this time in Liverpool, Chris Chapman, uh, David Richardson from Big Finish, uh, Mark Aldridge, uh, Craig, whose surname I don't even know, a drunken encounter that led me to one of the best interviews that you've not heard yet, uh, Richard Marson, Michael McManus, Andrew Smith, Richard Bignall, Glenn Randall, Jason Zerdin, uh, and on Twitter, some people have given me great feedback and retweets and, and just encouragement, and that's always appreciated. Uh, and I don't think I know any of them, but uh, I feel like I do. Claire Hardiker always says hello and something nice. Bless you, Claire. David Steele, the same. Trevor Smith, Tony Cross, uh, Tariq Latif, Melvin Pena, uh, and my mate Jim Smith. Uh, thanks, guys, because cyberspace can be scary sometimes. And Radio Free Scaro have never been shy about mentioning the gig or plugging the gig, and that's a fantastic podcast. So cheers to them as well, and to Tom and Peter and everyone from Doctor Who magazine. And, um, of course, to Big Finish, Nick Briggs for agreeing to do the idea, David Richardson for them doing all the boring stuff, but doing it all with... Uh, his typical sage and courteous manner um, and then the late Paul Sprague who is much missed uh, and whose untimely death was terribly sad uh, who put up with me <laughs> in the early stages of the thing when I really didn't know what I was doing um, I'm not sure I do still um, bless Paul he was such a lovely man and then Ian Atkins who took over from Paul and has had such faith in the project and has worked so hard, and he's been the guy that's really been enabling them to tumble out uh, uh, at the pace that they have, uh, and he's unfailingly enthusiastic, and that's a, that's a real boost, it really is. Um, and on a personal level, uh, I'd like to thank Peter Crocker um, for sort of being there since the beginning of this and being on hand to offer uh, wisdom, restraint, uh, advice uh, and kindness um, and often a roof so thanks Peter and um, and I'd also like to give great big proper thanks to Shirley Houston just because uh, and this all began when a man called John Keefe tweeted me after the worst Christmas I'd ever had I uh, wasn't in great physical health at all I was in a very dark period of my personal life and suggested that I do this thing, that I embrace this idea. Isn't that what Doctor Who's about, I suppose, when your back's against the wall and everything's looking terrible? Strange man sticks his hand out, holds it and says, run. And I ran towards a very silly podcast that's taken up far too much of my time. Uh, but I hope you've enjoyed it. 
I actually have, and I look back now and I'm not quite sure how I did it, but I'm really glad I did, and thank you for listening, and incidentally, Merry Christmas to all of you listening. to Sue Cowley, without whom this podcast and my chat with Mr Moffat would never have happened. Thanks to Sue and her partner Steve also for being good friends. Uh, Stephen Moffat's charity is Cancer Research. Uh, the website for that is www.cancerresearchuk.org. Cancerresearchuk, all one word, dot org. Who's round, as the tradition goes, will return in 2015. And you'll be hearing from some of these people. It was a, um, a really, really happy first screen job. And, um, and I remember cycling away from, from TV Centre thinking that everybody knew who I... Everyone must know who I was. I mean, I was on cloud nine. And I know it seems strange for, for, for you know, I was a boy of 21 or something, 22, and... Um, uh, uh, and uh, I just thought this was the beginning of a glittering career, which it wasn't entirely. But but, well, but it was a, it was an interesting. It was. I now look back on it and, and can't believe my acting. But nevertheless, you know, um, I, I just remember loving it, absolutely loving it. I remember turning round. I remember turning round to to see it, uh, which was really a huge shock of a monster. <laughs> yes. And I got my back to the thing, and I, I knew it was now that I turned and see the monster, and I didn't know it. Well, that could go for a start. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it was. I loved the gypsy life, and the fact that I, I had, I suppose, no responsibility. I was just, I was just out there, as I say, showing off. Look, look at me. Look how great I am. I can be this person, I can be that person. That was, that was really attractive. I love Peter Sellers and the way he changed his characters. Fascinating. For some reason, I didn't have a particularly unhappy childhood. You know, I, wasn't, I, don't think, I don't feel I was escaping from anything. It was just I had a facility, you know, for uh, um, mimicry, I suppose. I could always mimic people, ever since I was tiny. I knew I was a replacement. I had a tendency to be... I think Barry was very wary of using me for fear of, of being accused of nepotism because he was my uncle, literally. But he, he tended to call on me at short notice when people dropped out, and that was one of the times. And John, in due course, many months later, invited me to one of these Doctor Who seminars yeah. for fans who meet in their hundreds now. Uh, and he invited me to talk uh, about my experiences, the one and only experience of Doctor Who. And so I did, but I made the terrible error of saying that Doctor Who was never a favorite program of mine. <laughs> I was almost Lynch. <laughs> oh, well, you, you're perfectly at liberty to say what you like here. There's no Lynch well, here. Right, on... li I, and they had to rescue me from the stage. Oh, really? Yes. Is that why you've only ever done one convention? 